good morning. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Harvest Time, and um, you get to hear me preach today. Thank you. All right. <laughs> All right, if you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The book of Thessalonians is a very interesting book to me. Um, you know, if you think back about when it was written, it was written somewhere between 30 I'm sorry, 20 and 30 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. For, for those of you who, who, who don't know the end of the story after the resurrection, Jesus um, was with his disciples for like three years. He, 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 he was killed on the cross for us. He laid down his life. He was dead for three days, and then he rose again. That was, and that's the part that we celebrated just a few weeks ago on Easter. Now, what happens after his, his resurrection is that he hung out for like 40 days with Christians, giving them some final instructions and some final ideas and some teachings, preparing them for this next seg seg section of time in which there would be um, uh, the church. A lot of folks call it the church age. And after, at the end of that 40 days, after he gave his final instructions, he went through what's called the ascension, and he ascended into heaven. And as he was doing that, he left, he had a few final words that he was saying to people. And if you guys remember what, what those words were, he said, he gave them instructions, right? He said, go and make disciples, but he also made a promise. Anybody remember what that promise is? I'm coming back. Now, what's interesting about that is that the early church, which included the Thessalonians here, and were absolutely convinced that Jesus was going to come back during their life. They were absolutely convinced of it. And what, what's interesting about these folks, specifically the Thessalonians, is that these, this church was made up of all kinds of different people. Um, Paul was known as the evangelist to the Gentiles, and he established churches throughout Asia. And the folks that were in these churches had zero theological background. They didn't grow up in Sunday school. They weren't taught the Old Testament scripture. They, did, they really probably didn't have an idea who Yahweh was. They had no idea about the promises of the coming Messiah that the Jewish people had been given their entire, their entire life. And so Paul goes around and he preaches the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen again. And all of these people in the early church come to know Jesus. And it was not just confined to the religious Jewish person. It was people like you and I who had zero church background. Now, the, that's fantastic, isn't it, to know that that message has been presented. Because of Paul's ministry, most of us in this room are, are now able to hear the gospel. Because guess what? We're the Gentiles. There might be a few of you who aren't, but most of us in this room are Gentiles. And God called Paul, and the result of his ministry is that everybody in this room who is a Gentile has the opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, here's the problem. Because the early church, specifically the Gentile churches like Thessalonica and Ephesus and Colossae, which all these letters were written by Paul too, had zero theological background. And so all they knew is what Paul told them. Now, Paul went through and he established them. He, he, he shared with them the basics of scripture, the, the basics of the gospel. He shared with them what had been given to him. But Paul... And, and all the early Christians did not have a completed word of God. 
They, they, th- this was compiled a little bit later. And so what was happening is Paul was writing these letters that were given to him by God, inspired by God, and he would send a letter to the Thessalonian church, and then they would sit around and they'd read the letter. And then that letter would give them new revelation from God about how they were to live their life and what they should be thinking and feeling and believing in the times of what was happening for them because the Thessalonian church was under attack by the culture around them. Uh, Thessalonica was in the middle of Roman culture and the belief in a single God and and a redemptive work of Jesus Christ was not a popular belief. And so when people gave their life to Christ, they were submitting themselves to to possible persecution. And Paul actually, in the book of Thessalonians, congratulates them on remaining faithful to God in the midst of persecution. So let let me start off by saying this. If you give your life to Jesus, that does not mean you're going to be delivered from persecution. In fact, the opposite is probably true. The scripture says, you will have trouble on this planet. And if you stand up for the truth of God in your life, even doing it in a loving way, there will be a price to be paid. So as people followed Jesus in, the, in, in, in this church, they were facing all kinds of persecution. People were losing jobs. They were losing families. They were losing opportunities in a culture that was directly opposed to the values of God's word. So Paul writes them and says, Good job. Way to remain faithful. Way to remain a a, a symbol of love in this community, loving one another in the midst of this dark world. But something else interesting was happening at the same time. Uh, the, The church, the Thessalonians, because they had not had any theological background and because they had not as of yet been given all the specifics about the return of Jesus, they knew he was coming back. They believed he was coming back before the end of their life. But turmoil was arising in the church. In other words, church folk began to argue. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine? And they were arguing about what happened to their brothers and sisters in Christ who died before Jesus came back. You see, they hadn't had any teaching on that as of yet because being a Christian was new. They were convinced that Jesus was coming back before anybody died, so why even worry about it? Well, then their first friend that they went to church with died. And then another one. And suddenly, they didn't know what was going on, and their faith was shaken. And what do we do when our faith is shaken? Well, we begin, human beings do this all the time. Whenever there's a a gap in what we believe and there's not an answer for it, we begin to formulate our own ideas and fill in those gaps with our opinions. Now, here's the problem. Um, Opinions are not inspired, right? They are not. We think they are. Usually we think that God agrees with all my opinions. Got news for you. If God agreed with all your opinions, then the God you're worshiping is not God. You're worshiping yourself. Right? So the reality of what's happening is here is that these people were not aware of what was going to happen when believers who were alive suddenly die and Jesus hasn't returned yet. This is an important teaching. And the reason it's important teaching is because it is the foundation for why we as followers of Jesus can have hope, even when we're facing negative circumstances and death. 
I, I remember uh, my, my, my grandmother, Ethel, she's my great-grandmother. She passed away quite a few years ago, and we were at her funeral service, and we began sharing stories about what was going on in her life. Grandma Ethel knew the Lord. She was a, she was a, a, a funny woman. She was an ornery woman, and we had all kinds of crazy stories about Grandma Ethel that I will not share with you right now, but a big part of our funeral service was a celebration and a celebration of her life, and we laughed a lot at my grandma's funeral. Now, there were some people who were like, well, it's a funeral. Why, why are you laughing? Well, because we don't grieve like people who don't have hope. We, 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 we don't grieve like somebody who doesn't know where grandma is. We know where she is. We know um, that she had a faith in Christ. And so this wasn't this permanent, all-ending goodbye where there wasn't going to be a reunion in the future. So because of that, we are able to celebrate her life and to be able to enjoy hilarious stories about my grandma at her funeral and had a great time celebrating her. Now, did we grieve because we had to say goodbye to her? Of course. It's, it's, but it's more like when I dropped my son off at college. When I dropped my uh, Titus, um, my, my, my oldest son, he's, he's going to be a junior at Liberty University next year. When I dropped him off his freshman year at college and I pulled out of the school, I bawled for about 12 hours. I did. I, I was, it was awful. The, my first kid who's leaving home, he's been with me the whole time. I'm there. I'm dropping him off in another state where I can't be there immediately to pick him up and fix things if something breaks down. I, my heart was just broken. But I was sad because I was saying goodbye to my son. But I knew that I was going to see him again. So it wasn't like this permanent cut off just hopeless sadness, it was more like, well, things are changing. I don't necessarily like the change. I, I don't like the fact that my son's 13 hours away. I, I don't like the fact that I don't get to see him every day. I don't, I don't like the fact that I had to say goodbye. But in order for him to take the, that next step and to have that next step in his life, this transition and change had to transpire. Now, I look at my grandmother's life. She had Alzheimer's, and she was sick for a long time. She had, did she have diabetes? I can't remember. She had all kinds of physical illnesses, and she lived a good, long life. And I, we grieved because we didn't want to say goodbye to her, but at the same time, in order for her to experience a, a, a full, amazing healing that she needed, the only way that could happen was with her being passing away from this life and moving on into the next where she experienced that healing. And that's a perspective that our family was able to hold on to because of the fact that we knew she knew the Lord and we knew what our next steps were because we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So I'm asking you today as, as a follower of Jesus, as we read what we're going to read in, in the scripture today, when, when, when you are faced with trials and tribulations, when you are faced with a loss in your life, please understand that you, you, grieving is natural. We're not saying don't grieve. But the way we grieve as followers of Jesus needs to be different than the people who don't have hope. In fact, how we grieve is part of our testimony before a world that is not, doesn't possess the hope of Jesus Christ. So the, the title of the message today is called The Sting, Grieve, but Grieve with Hope. The people of Thessalonians needed to have clarity given to them by the apostle about what would happen once somebody who knows Jesus passes from this life into eternal life. 
And we're going to read quite a few passages, quite a few verses. So follow with me as we get get into the passage today. First Thessalonians chapter four. On the screen, we're going to start with verse thirteen. But I want I want you to bump back to verse nine real quick here. This passage, this this whole section, is kind of bookended by Paul's recommendation for how Christians should behave in the midst of knowing that Jesus is coming back at any time. Recognizing Jesus could come back, so how should you live? Well, this passage has, is bookended by two process, two things to recommend for how you should live. So starting at verse 9, read with me. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. A lot of stuff going in that verse. We're not going to pull that apart because that could really be a whole sermon in and of itself. But basically what he's saying is in the light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back, your behavior should reflect that. Your belief that Jesus could come back at any moment should affect how you live. And in the light of that, what is he saying? He's, he's saying, listen, you, you don't need me to tell you, but one of the things that as followers of Jesus you should be known for is how you love other Christians. How you treat other Christian people. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's not just saying the ones you like. He's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, people that you are family with, people that annoy you, people that may say something that offends you, people that you are in a familial relationship with, how do you treat them? Our response needs to be and always should be, how do we choose to represent love to our brothers and sisters in Christ? And that matters not just because it's a matter of obedience, but it's the love that we have for one another the scripture says that's how they will know we are Christians, by our love for one another. And so if we are responding to fellow Christians in an unloving way, in an unkind way, in an unjust way, if we are more, more concerned about our opinion and being right than we are about having a relationship that represents God's kingdom on earth through other people, then our testimony before men in light of Jesus' return is not going to be effective. He also says this, uh, and this is very, very interesting to me. He says, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own business, affairs, and to work with your own hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk. Why is this important? So that you can walk properly before outsiders. Who are outsiders? People outside the faith. Listen, for many of us, we are more concerned about the immoral lives of lost people than we are about our own walk with Jesus Christ. And we focus so much on, on being angry at people, lost people, because they're behaving like lost people, that we forget that the most important thing about how we live in this life is our testimony before men, which includes how we love other people. And don't, get, don't get me wrong. Is it correct for us to speak truth and love? Scripture commands it. Speak 
truth and love. But unless your life, my life, reflects that truth, then we don't have standing to speak into anybody's life. Our, 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 our calling is to actually live like we believe Jesus is coming back. <laughs> and yet for many of us, that's a challenge. He says, mind your own affairs. Live quietly. Work with your hands. So that you may walk properly for outsiders, before the lost, and be dependent on no one. All of that is about maintaining testimony in this world. How do outsiders, people outside the church, view your life? What's the first thing they think of when they talk, when, when, they, when your name comes up in conversation? What is the first thing that comes to their mind? Are, are you the guy who is kind and helpful? <laughs> are you the guy who um, has a good testimony? Are, are, you, are you somebody who doesn't engage in the negative conversations, the gossip of this world? Are you, are you somebody who is different? Scripture calls us to be salt and light, to be different than the world? Or does your life reflect the values of this world? Paul is saying, listen, your life should be different. Then he goes on into this, verse 13, and this is where the meat of our passage will be today. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Some, some versions say ignorant. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. Now let me clarify something here. When he is saying sleep here, he is talking about death, okay? So, and the reason he's using this terminology, because the, the idea of sleep is that it's temporary. People who are dead, um, especially followers of Jesus, are not going to remain dead. They are alive, the scripture tells us. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the idea of sleep here is basically that this is a temporary situation for the followers of Jesus. And the reason that it's important for us not to be ignorant about what happens next is so that we can grieve with hope. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, we're going to continue reading in a moment. But I'm going to give you ten observations from this passage that I think will help all of us to remain encouraged even in the face of death and tragedy. Number one. You can find it in verses 14 and 15 and verse 9. But let's go back to verse 14 and read it again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. 
Observation one, Jesus' followers who have passed are with him now. When a follower of Jesus, now think about it again. These are early Christians. They, they have not heard this before. This is the first time, right, that they are actually wrapping their brain around what happens if they die before Jesus comes back. And Paul is giving them this assurance that if somebody knows Jesus Christ and they die, that immediately they are transported into God's presence. That should be an incredible, incredible encouragement to all of us. And yet, here's the, here's the reality of it. Jason covered this over the last several weeks. We, we don't like to even think about death. We don't like to even have a conversation about death. We do everything we can to avoid it when in reality, as a follower of Jesus, death should not be something that's feared. Now, again, I'm not in a hurry to die, and I know that you are not either. But that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, passing from this life into the next life should be something that, in a strange way, we look forward to. <laughs> now, again, nobody wants to go through the process of death. Um, the Psalms tells us that uh, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we, we don't have to fear evil. We fear no evil because God is with us and he walks with us through that. But the reality is, is, why are we as followers of Jesus afraid of death? I think it's more because we are unclear. There's a lot of unknown in the process of dying. It's, it's, um, there's a reason why in, in Psalms it's called the shadow of death. What's inside a shadow? Anybody have an idea? Well, that's the problem. We don't, we don't know. Right? By, by nature, a shadow is the inability to see what's in a specific location. So we always fill in the unknown with our biggest insecurities and fears. We always do that. And so when we're facing death, it's like there's this giant unknown thing that we're going to go through in order to get to the presence of God, and we fear it. So we avoid it, and we don't want to talk about it. But the fact is, is that as Jesus followers, our Savior has already gone that way, and he knows the way. He's walked through it. He's been there through it. And then the Psalms makes the promise that even though we face the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear. Why? What does the scripture say? Because he is with us, and he has already gone the way. Brothers and sisters, that is hope. The fact that we do not have to, trans, to, to, to travel that road on our own, that we get to go with somebody who's already been there and already knows the way, has already been through the process of death, knows exactly what it is, walks with us through it, and has promised in the, ver in the Bible that the moment we close our eyes here on this planet, we will open them in the very presence of God. That should be an encouragement to all of us. So number one, Jesus' followers who have passed are with him now, number two, go up to verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will, and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air. Number two, Jesus is coming back. Now, at this early, at this early stage, when people began to die doubt began to creep into the minds of these, these believers because they thought, well, before any of us die, Jesus is coming back. 
Jesus never promised that. He never promised that before anybody dies that he was going to return. But the humans put God into a box and put their parameters and expectations on God. And when he didn't meet their expectations, suddenly we had arguments and doubts and fears. And I know that for many of us in this room that Satan likes to plant doubts and fears and all kinds of things into our mind because he wants to convince us that Jesus might not be coming back. Because if he can convince you that he might not, then you have just the smallest bit of an excuse to live like he's not coming back. And if you look at at not just harvest time, but the, the church as a whole, we all give lip service to this idea that Jesus is coming but the question is, do we live like he could come back at any moment? You see, we get so wrapped up in the things of this world. We place our hope in, in bank accounts and organizations and politics and politicians. And we, we, we wrap our attention around all of these things that are based on this world. And we live, even though we say we believe Jesus is coming back, we live and behave and do all the things like he might not. Jesus is coming back. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, are you ready? Are you ready? Does the fact that I'm saying with authority that Jesus is coming, does that bring comfort to you? Or does it inspire fear? Not only is Jesus coming back, that's number two. Number three, his second coming will not be like the first one. The first one, very few people knew he had arrived. There, was, there were some angels, some shepherds, and a couple other people showed up, and he, he kind of eased his way in. This time, the scripture tells us in that same passage, there's going to be a giant trumpet, there's the archangels coming, and it's going to be one of the weirdest experiences in the history of the world. It's not going to be a secret. And I don't know about you, but if I stood in here with a trumpet and I blew the trumpet in here, um, would you guys be like, I don't know for sure there's a trumpet? No, the reality is that this is going to happen in a way that the entire world's going to know something's going to happen. Now, the things, the, the, the people of the world are going to have some alternative explanations for what happened in that moment. They're going to try, there'll be what's called the great deception that will come in where they're trying to convince people, well, that wasn't really Jesus' return. And they'll try to convince people of something else going on. But when it happens, you, there will be no doubt what happened. There will be no doubt. So not only are Jesus' followers who have passed away with him now, not only do we know for sure Jesus is coming back, and not only um, do we know that his second coming will not be like the first time, but we also believe this. In verse four, uh, read in verse 14 with me. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 4, number 4, when Jesus returns, he will bring all of his followers who have died with him. Every person who has a relationship with God through Jesus, when Jesus returns, they're all coming with him. They're all coming with him. And that's an incredible, I I can't even wrap my brain around what that's going to be like. Scripture says that Jesus will come with all those folks. And number five is, a, is just like number four, except it's very, very similar. 
At the same time, in verse 17, we hear that Jesus will call up all of his living followers to meet him and those other people who are already dead in the air. There's going to be this gigantic family reunion of some kind where Jesus' followers who have already passed and the ones that are left on the earth will, will join together in this meeting in the air. And it's going to be an incredible reunion where everybody is going to be enthralled with the person of Jesus Christ. Now again, for some of you, this brings hope. For others of you, you're like, what in the world is going on? Hmm. Let me continue. Go into chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the times, the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is a peace and security, and sudden destruction it will come upon them as labor pains come upon the pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Started in those first three verses, we have number six. Jesus' return will come suddenly, and no one knows when it's going to happen. No one knows when it's going to happen. Let me be clear about something with you. If there is a teacher that says they know when Jesus is coming back, if they give you a date or a time or they, figure, they think that there's some kind of special revelation that's giving them information that nobody else has, run out of their building away from their teaching as fast as you possibly can. I'm not joking. When scripture says no one knows the day or the hour, no one, then when somebody claims that they are in direct opposition of the teaching of God's word, that's something we call apostasy. It's called um, false teaching. And the scripture says that over and over in the, in the end times, there will be all kinds of false teachers that will be telling people exactly what they want to hear at the end times in order to, to help them stray away from biblical teaching. This is one of those things. This is one of those things that is a, um, a make or break when you're selecting a teacher to listen to. If they're telling you they know when Jesus is coming, they're lying. They're lying. At the same time, if they're telling you, well, he could come back at any time, we just don't know when, that's the truth. We need to hold on to that. So Jesus is coming. It'll become suddenly, it's, it's not something where you're going to be like, well, you know, maybe in a week we're going to know. The truth is, as the scripture says, it'll be like a twinkling of an eye. It'll be, it'll be like a thief in the night. It'll come at a time where, where a lot of people are, are feeling like things are maybe getting a little bit better. People, things are going, the scripture tells us that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in history, somewhere along the line, it's going to be like, man, finally there's some peace of some kind that's coming up. And people are going to have a little bit of confidence and then all of a sudden, whenever that happens, God's coming back. You don't know when it is. And throughout the centuries, most generations think that their generation is the worst one. And this, it can't possibly get any worse as we prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Everybody thought, thinks that the Antichrist is in their generation. I know that people thought that the Roman government and Nero were the Antichrist way back then. I, back in the, during World War II, I've, I've read books where people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. 
Coming up in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, I, I saw where people thought Joseph Stalin or the, the Russian Empire was the Antichrist. And then modern days, we got all kinds of Antichrists that people talk about all the time. Usually as somebody they disagree with politically, they're the Antichrist, right? The truth is that the spirit of the Antichrist exists on this planet at all times. Anything that is opposed to the teaching of Jesus is the Antichrist, and there will be a figure in, in history future that embodies all of that as part of Satan's plan, final plan to, to rebel against God. But in the end, Jesus' return is not something you can predict. We don't know when. So what that does is that it makes it incredibly important that we live every moment of every day like Jesus could come back at any moment, any day. Now, that should change how we live our lives. When something g grabs our attention and, and, and takes away our ability to place our hope in God, when, when something distracts us from the purposes of the kingdom, whether that be you know, trying to save up money or, or worrying about gas prices or thinking about an election or maybe we're, we're thinking about whether or not we're going to get to retire or whether or not we'll have enough money to make it next week and we get so wrapped up and focused on those earthly things that it affects our behavior negatively and our ability to actually have a testimony before men now. I ask you, where have you placed your hope? If you've placed your hope in politics and the guy you voted for doesn't win, what happens? You lose hope. If, if you place your hope in a spouse that has been in your life for, for a long time and they die, or that marriage fails, what happens to your hope? You lose it. If you've placed your hope in the fact that you're going to have money to retire on and the stock market tanks and your bank account empties, if that's where your hope is, what's going to happen to your hope? It's gone. But if we place our hope in the sure thing of Jesus' return, and yes, we are involved in all of these things. I'm not saying don't get involved with politics. I'm not saying don't vote. We should be engaged in those things, but the lens that we look at everything should be the kingdom of God and Jesus' return. Our involvement, how we work, how we live, how we speak, how we vote, should all be reflected through the filter of Jesus Christ's return. Not the other way around. And we need to live like he's coming back. Number seven. Jesus' coming will be followed by judgment and destruction on those who do not know Jesus. Verse three. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Let me, there's a reason why I bring this up specifically. If you're here today, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, then that verse should scare you. Did you hear me? The idea that after Jesus returns comes God's judgment. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you are facing the judgment of God devoid of any kind of interaction from Jesus and his sacrifice. The full weight of God's judgment will fall upon those who do not know Jesus. And if you do not know Jesus, that should scare you. Believer, listen to me. 
That fact should bring you a certain amount of comfort in the fact that we get to escape God's judgment. But it also should breed some kind of urgency in your life that people that you know and love may face God's judgment apart from Jesus. Again, when we are living our life, it's so easy for us to live like Jesus isn't coming back. And so there's no urgency in, the, 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 uh, in our evangelism. There's, there's no urgency in us telling other people about Jesus. There's no urgency to it because while we give lip service to the return of Christ, we don't live like he's actually going to come. Listen, he's coming. He's coming. And for followers of Jesus, that's an incredible comfort. It's a, it's a joy. It's a, it's a source of hope. But we have to be mindful of the many, many people who do not know Jesus Christ, who do not possess that hope, and who, if they face God's judgment apart from Christ, will be separated from God for eternity. Sorry, it's getting away from me a little bit. Verses four through eight, really quickly. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are, not the, we are not of the night or the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. In other words, be clear thinking, having put on the breastplate of faith, and love, and for a helmet of hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. My final few points as we close. Number eight, in light of Jesus' return at any time, we must remain awake, alert, and live out faith, hope, and love. Do your, does your life reflect faith, hope, and love in the light that Jesus is coming? Number nine, actually in verse nine as well. Believers are destined for salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are destined for salvation, not wrath. The wrath of God does not fall on people who are followers of Jesus Christ. Another incredible gift of salvation. And then finally, verses 10 through 18. I'll let you read most of those on your own, but I'm going to jump forward to 15. Paul then gives a final list of things. He says, believers, in light of all that we've just learned, that Jesus is coming back, this is how you should live. This is what your life should reflect. Starting in verse 15, he says this, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Stop. I mean, that could be a sermon in and of itself, right? We, we as followers of Jesus really need to learn that when somebody does evil to us, the response should not be to do evil in return. How we respond to somebody doing evil to us is part of our testimony. How do you do it? Hmm. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Notice it says everyone, which means everyone. Rejoice always, 
Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Church, our lives have to reflect the truth of God in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Your testimony matters. How you represent the kingdom of God wherever you are, at work, at church, at school, matters. The words you say, the things that you make important, all those things matter because we are called to live like Jesus is actually coming back. Do you believe he's coming back? Well, that was four people. I hope more of you believe that. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? He is. Are you ready? Are you ready? If you don't know Jesus today, you're not ready. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you, if you don't know Jesus today, to consider giving your life to him. Scripture says to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. If you don't know Jesus, talk to me, talk to Jason, talk to one of the guys on that list out there. Every one of those guys should should be able to share the gospel with you. A Sunday school teacher, talk to somebody that can point you in the direction of a God who loves you and sacrificed his son for you. Christian, if you are not living like Jesus is coming back, change. Stop. Every word, every action needs to be a reflection of that truth with the return of Jesus in mind. All of them. What does your life reflect to this world in light of Jesus' coming return? I pray that you're ready. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would have your will in us. I pray that we will find hope in you. I pray that as a follower of Jesus, that we would not be afraid of your return, that we would be anticipating it, looking forward to you coming down here and fixing this mess that we've made. At the same time, Lord, I pray that we will not grieve as those who have no hope. I pray that how we grieve, how we talk, how we speak, and how we act will be a reflection of your truth and that in the end, we will be pointing to your return as something that is coming, it's inevitable, but it's something that we can look forward to, but also it's, a, it's a, an encouragement for us to go out and share the gospel with others who are dying without it. Have your way in us today, Jesus. If there is something in our life that is preventing us from having a good testimony before men in the light of your return, I pray that we'll surrender it to you today. And if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, I pray that your, your spirit would convict them and draw them to yourself today. Have your way in us, Jesus. We love you. Amen.